I'm, I'm really been looking forward to this, this sermon because uh, several things. One, it's just going to be exciting to see all of you again. And another thing is I had kind of a dream I'm going to share with you this week. I don't normally have dreams. I don't really believe that God speaks to us through our dreams unless there's scripture in our dreams, but that happened to be the case in mine. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm going to share with you this morning on the subject of the memory and the majesty of God's word. And next week we'll talk about the meaning of God's word. And so we're looking at the passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 21 right now. So let me read those, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the liberty uh, to read them twice. And I apologize, the scripture reference on the left is not the right reference, but the scripture on the right is. So let me read these, and this is uh, beginning around verse uh, 12, I think. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it is meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we have made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And uh, just so that you can hear a, a little bit, uh, maybe a different flavor of that here, let me read it to you again this time from the Lexham English Bible. And again, the reference on the left side of the slide is wrong, but let's read the verses. Therefore, I intend to remind you continually concerning these things, although you know them and are established in the truth that you have. But I consider it right for as long as I'm in this habitation to stir you up by a reminder, because I know that the removal of my habitation is imminent, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will also make every effort that you may be able at any time after my departure to recall these things to mind. For we did not make known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ by following ingeniously concocted myths, but by being eyewitnesses of that one's majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice such as this was brought to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice brought from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I really have to like that uh, translation a lot. So there's two sections this today's message. And the first is the memory of God's word. And, and there's some things that we shouldn't forget. Uh, but I don't know about you, but it, it's easy to forget stuff. Uh, things that I used to know technically, uh, I, I have to sometimes go back and look up formulas. Uh, I can still convert Fahrenheit to Celsius and back and forth in my head, but there's a lot of other formulas I don't remember anymore because I don't use them. Uh, I took a, a two years of calculus, and I can't honestly tell you now what it was I was using calculus for. I, I can tell you the derivative of 8x squared is 16x, but I don't know what the significance of that is. 
there's there's facts I've forgotten, and, and I've even looking back sometimes one of my kids will share a memory, or my wife will share a memory of something we did as a family, and I think I don't think I was there. You know, oh yeah, Dad, you were there. No, it doesn't sound familiar to me, uh, because we forget stuff, and. One of the things that you'll notice in this passage is Peter believes that he will not live much longer. And so he wants to make sure that he reminds people of certain things. Now, I have a project that I started probably six months ago, and I haven't been faithful to it. Like most good projects, they're only as good as your diligence to do them, but I have worked on it some. I am trying to spend a little time on Saturday morning, since that's maybe my one morning a week that I am not have too much to do, although yesterday certainly was an exception to that. Uh, But I'm trying to, uh, it sounds morbid, but I'm trying to prepare for my own death. Because I'm prepared, you know, when Jesus calls me home, I'm going to say, yes, sir, and I'm going, I'm happy, I'm looking forward to that. But it's going to be a big impact on my family. So I'm trying to write them letters and I'm trying to write instructions and know, know, let Judy know how she can get all the accounts and where things are. And I want to stick all these instructions in a big envelope in the safe and we actually have a three ring binder that has my will in it and everything's already in the safe along with the insurance policies. But I want to put some other instructions because there's going to be a lot of having to cope with life. And if, by the way, if you guys have never First of all, if you've never made a will, you should have one. Uh, if you have never put all your insurance policies in one place to make it easy to find, you should do that because it brings a lot of peace to your wife knowing that she knows where that stuff is. Don't make her hunt for it. So I'll give you that little tip. Uh, something I did years ago and after we went through, we, we were meeting for a series of financial classes and as part of that class, uh, we, we did a will. We had somebody come in and, and uh, notarize the will. I have to redo it because one of my, my youngest child wasn't even born there. So she's in there. It's covered by a phrase and any other children born to this union, but I kind of like for Christiana's name to be in there. So I'm planning on redoing that later this year. But... Um, you know, the fact of the matter is we got all that done and I put all the insurance policies and we put it in the safe and, and then Judy told me sometime later, she says, you know, that really helps me feel better. It brings me peace to know that you've already taken care of those things. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. Well, Peter's trying to do something similar. He, he's concerned that the people to whom he's writing won't forget the things that are truly important to him. And that's why it's good. If you've got something that's really important you want your kids to remember, write them a letter. And give it to them now or give it to them later, but write it down so that they'll have it. Reminders are necessary because life is short. It's necessary because life is short. There is one sure statistic. Now, you can manipulate almost any statistic to say anything you want. You know, there are coronavirus statistics right now to show us that, hey, this thing's not nearly as deadly as we thought because there's probably 80 times more people that actually have been infected than are being reported on the rolls. So that means that the actual case fatality rate is much less. That sounds wonderful. But then you look at other statistics and show that of those who have been reported, the case fatality rate is doggone high. So we can take whichever statistic to make whatever point we want to make, and we have to be discerning when we're looking for the truth that we're going to apply to our own lives. But there's one statistic that you absolutely cannot mess with, and it's this. One out of every one people die. Now that can be changed, and it's backed up in Hebrews 9.27 where it says, And it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. 
Every one of us are going to die. There's only been a few exceptions to that through history. One of them was a fellow by the name of Enoch. God looked at Enoch one day and he liked Enoch so much. He says, why don't you come up to heaven for a day? Enoch got up there, found out it was always day, so he never came back. And then there was Elijah who got to take a really cool taxi ride in a fiery chariot all the way up to heaven. And he never died. But other than that, every one out of every one person for the rest of history dies. We can't fault that. And so Peter knew he was going to die, but also he had reason to believe that, other reasons to believe that his days were numbered. And he wants to remember, and I want you to notice in verse 12, he says, I will remind you, verse 13, I will refresh your memory continually. Verse 15, I want you to be able to remember. And so he's, he's over and over again, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to remind you. Sometimes pastors feel a little guilty for being repetitive. Uh, I've been preaching uh, this year, was 40 years and after 40 years of preaching, I can tell you that the essentials of the Christian life boil down to read your Bible, pray, worship together, meditate on Scripture, and share Christ with others. And that's pretty well the essentials of the Christian life, and that hasn't changed. Uh, the gospel hasn't changed. It's still the same. Now, I keep growing in my understanding of Scripture, and I see more and more things that apply to me, but occasionally we have to remind people. Paul had to remind the Corinthians. He told the Corinthians, he says, you're still like babies in Christ. You haven't grown. You're, you're like carnal Christians, and I have to, we have to go back to these basic things. The writer of Hebrews told the people to whom he was writing, he says, by this time, you ought to have your senses exercised to, to meet, but I have to lay again these basic principles for you of ordination and baptism and, and salvation. And he says, you know, we need to grow up. We have to get into these, these deeper things. And so uh, we need to be reminded because life is short. And if your life is short, you need to be reminding people around you of what's really important to you. And, and, and Peter almost seems apologetic here. He's saying, now listen, I, I said I'm going to remind you of these things, but I know that you already know them. I know that you're mature. I know you're strong. But the fact of the matter is, I want you to stay that way. He's not at all being critical, nor was he suggesting that they're wavering. Instead, he's saying, I know you're established in truth, but I want you to stay that way. The word established comes from the Greek word sterizo, which means to strengthen or be firm. He says, I want you to be firm in this. Not, not just you kind of know it, but I want you to be firmly grounded in it. He actually says, I want to keep on refreshing your memory. In Greek, the present tense signifies a continuous action. So he says, I'm going to be keeping on reminding you. So if you ever hear the pastor reminding us of the same things we know, that's okay, that's biblical. If I keep reminding you of things you've already heard, that's okay, that's biblical. Uh, so Peter says... I think it is mean as long as I'm in this tabernacle, and tabernacle refers to a tent, he's referring to his own body. He's not referring to what he's living in. He's saying our body's like a tent, and eventually we pack up and we move off and we leave the tent behind or, or we just roll the tent up. And he says, as long as I'm in this body, my tabernacle, I, I think it's meet or appropriate or proper to continue to stir you up by putting you, present tense, continuous action in Remembrance. So I'm going to keep putting you in remembrance of these things. Now, why in the world do we even need reminding to begin with? Well, as I said, we get older, we get more forgetful, there's more water under the bridge. Uh, I tell people it's not the age, it's the mileage. 
Uh, it's just how much water has been under your bridge. But, but a lot of times believers tend to do one of two things with spiritual truth. One is they forget. Now we've already seen this verse in 2 Peter 1.9 where he said, But he that lacketh these things, talking about those things of spiritual growth. Remember he said, Add to your faith virtue, and add to virtue knowledge, and add to knowledge uh, brotherly kindness, add to brotherly kindness love. And he says, If you lack any of these things, you're blind, you're myopic, you have spiritual nearsightedness. And we spent parts of two sermons going over spiritual eye conditions. He says, and cannot see afar off, and listen to these next words, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. I've known Christians who had a real experience with Christ, but then went a lot of years really without thinking about what Christ did for them. Uh, My mother told me one time that my brother, who's 16 years older than I am, had, when he was 15 or 16, had a great desire to serve the Lord and even possibly to become a preacher. But for most of my adult life, my brother, he wasn't real active in church. Uh, Used to, if Judy and I talked to him about going to a seminar, it was kind of like, oh, don't talk to me about spiritual things. Uh, He listened to country and western music and drank beer out in his, his garage when he's working on something but didn't really have a close walk with the Lord. And then uh, a fellow from their church who had a a gift for discipling people just started spending time with my brother. And my brother one day calls me up and he says, you know, Robert, I'm thinking about taking this course from the seminary in Dallas. Would you look over its doctrinal statement and see if it's a sound thing to do? Because he was an American Airlines pilot. He knew that while he was in a hotel room somewhere at the other end of his trip waiting for the return leg of his trip that he could be studying something. So he signed up for a seminary course. And, and I, I, my teeth nearly fell out of my mouth when I heard that. And then before I knew it, he was in Bible study fellowship. And then after a number of years, he, he not only... Uh, it was con- uh, in Bible study fellowship, but he was supervising them. And, and now he's for a number of years now, probably the last 15 years, he's been flying around the state in his own plane. He gets in his plane, he flies somewhere, and he supervises other Bible study fellowship meetings to make sure they're being done right. So he went from, I don't really want to talk about the Lord, to really working hard to serve the Lord. And I'm so much happier that my brother and I can be closer on a spiritual level now. But a lot of people have an experience with the Lord and then they just kind of, they, they quit making intentional spiritual growth. They don't do something to keep growing. What do you do to keep growing? You keep reading the Word. You keep praying. You keep fellowshipping with Christian people. You keep being iron that sharpens iron and bouncing your ideas off of other people and working with them. Now, I had a dream. And like I said, I, I, I've only had two dreams recently that really impressed me. I had a dream about two weeks ago. Uh, that uh, I picked up the phone and my mother was talking on it. And uh, uh, what she said was very interesting. She was telling me how proud she was of, of the kids. And you'll be happy to know my mother told me that I was tall and good looking. I really appreciate that, that word from the Lord through that dream about my mother. Uh, but at any rate, that was interesting just to have that, uh, that dream. But two nights ago I woke up in a rather unusual way, because I was having this dream that I was teaching seminary, and that's always been a dream of mine. And uh, I was teaching seminary, and I had uh, a a small group of people, about this many people, in my class, and I got started talking about the eternal security of the believer. I was teaching a theology class. And then as I began teaching about 
that I, I went from teaching to preaching because I just got so excited and so animated. And I started giving all the scriptural proofs for why you can't lose your salvation. And I feel sorry for people who think you can because the Bible makes it so plain and so clear that we can't lose our salvation. That if anybody would just read the scripture and take it at its, at, for face value, they couldn't believe this, this doctrine. L- let me put it this way, folks. Jesus knew that if we could mess up and lose our salvation, we would. So he put the keeping of our salvation in his and the Father's own hands. And because of that, once I'm genuinely born again, I'm going to stay that way. I can't lose it. And so I got excited to talk about that in my dream. And I woke up and I was feeling wonderful that I had something I couldn't lose. I can lose a lot of stuff. I lost a lot of money in the stock market in the last six months. But I can't lose this. And, and then there's people, though, that they're just unwilling to live out the truth they now have. So they either forget or they're unwilling. And this is why we need reminding. Now, let me just, by the way, I, since I broached that subject of you can't lose your salvation, let me just give you some very simple proofs that ought to eliminate this question forever and ever from your mind. And here, here's the first one. Uh, in John 10, 28-29, Jesus is speaking and he says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. In other words, once you got eternal life, you'll never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. It's as if Jesus is saying... That once you're a Christian, you are in his hand and no man can get you out of there. And then he put his hand in the Father's hand and that hand's wrapped around his hand and no man is getting out of there either. So I, I asked this class in my dream, I said, are you a part of any man? Because I had a, a friend that went to the Church of Christ one time tell me, he says, well... Other people can't make you lose your salvation, but you can stuff do stuff to lose your salvation. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you a part of any man? Or do you fit in that group? Are you a member of that group? Well, yes, you are. That's plain. So can any man pluck you out of God's hand according to what Jesus said? Absolutely not. The answer is a big no there. And not only that, if you are in the hand of God the Father, is there any bigger hand or any more powerful hand that would be able to pry open the hand of God and pull you out? Jesus said, no. No man. Not anyone, that includes you, can pluck yourself out of the Father's hand. Now, I don't know why this is even a question or a theological debate because Jesus settles it once and for all in in one quick verse. You can't lose your salvation. It's just absolutely not possible. 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we've already covered these verses but in our series on 1 Peter, but it begs going back to them again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a, a lively or a living hope. So this is a living hope, not a dead one. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to what he says we got based on the fact that we received Jesus as our Savior and Jesus arose again from the dead. He says to an inheritance incorruptible. That means that it won't go bad. It it can't get moldy like bread does. It can't get rusty like farm implements do. It just can't be corrupted, period. It's incorruptible. Uh, 
It's undefiled, means nothing messes it up. It fades not away. It doesn't just disappear like, you know, sometimes you get some kind of liquid in a container and over time it just evaporates. It doesn't do that. It's reserved in heaven for you. By the way, it's, you know, if you made reservations at a restaurant a few months ago, you may have found out they were canceled because restaurants had to close due to the coronavirus. But the coronavirus doesn't make it to heaven. Anything reserved there is good. It's available. You can't mess with it because it's in heaven where it's safe. And then listen to this. This is, this is another, puts the nail in the coffin of those people who say that you can lose your salvation. Who, that's you Christians, who you have received Jesus Christ, who are kept by the power of God. Okay, somebody please volunteer the answer to this question. What is a power greater than the power of God? I see no hands. There is no greater power. So if we're kept by the power of God, the only way we can be unkept is for a greater power than the power of God to unkeep us. That can't happen. And I'm sad to say there's denominations that practice what they call sacramental theology that believe if you don't get sacraments from the church regularly, you can lose your salvation. Uh, my friend in the Church of Christ, uh, he told me that... Uh, if if you miss, they have to have communion every Sunday, and if they don't take communion every single Sunday, and you sin during the week, you lose your salvation. That's sad. And there are other groups that that have this same belief. It's a belief that's common in in uh, some Episcopalian circles. It's a belief that's common in Charismatic circles. It's a belief that's common among the Greek Orthodox people. There's a lot of people that believe you can lose your salvation, but it's simply not true. Look right there. We're kept by the power of God. Now, the good news about that is, I can't ever lose my salvation. The bad news about that is, it's easy to start taking my salvation for granted. See, if I think I can lose it all the time, I'm constantly worried and fretted about it, and I'm trying to do everything I can to hold on to it. But when we know something's guaranteed, after a while, we kind of take it for granted, which we don't want to do. Because, by the way, the book of Hebrews warns about those who trample under the foot the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified and counted it a profane or a common thing. See, we can get to where we count the blood of Jesus Christ as common and ordinary because we don't stop to think how wonderful it was that Jesus died for us, that he rose again, and all I had to do to become a part of God's family is simply receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and then he's mine forever. That's why I was so happy about this dream. It just got me excited about the whole thing all over and over again. But you can't lose something kept by the power of God. Now, I need to point out something, though, and that is that salvation is still in our future. We are not saved yet. Now, I know that doesn't sound Baptist because Baptists are always talking about being saved. Uh, but we're not saved yet. Uh, look what Paul says in Romans 5. Much more being now justified. Here's what we have now. We're justified. We have justification right now. Being now justified. What's justified means? It means it's just as if I had never sinned because Jesus has blotted out my transgressions and my iniquities. He's wiped out the sin record and I have been justified or reconciled to God. He says being now justified, we what? We shall, future tense, be saved. I'm not saved yet, according to Paul. He says, that's coming in the future. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we are enemies, we were reconciled, past tense, when we, Jesus died on the cross, he reconciled us to God because he paid the penalty for our sins. 
He says, we were reconciled to God by the death of a son, much more being reconciled. We're still enjoying that present tense. We shall, future tense, be saved by his life. So Paul says, we've been reconciled. We are being, we are still reconciled. We are justified, but one day we shall be saved. Well, how in the world is that still in the future? Because if you look at the terms, the way Paul uses them, we were justified when we received Christ. Now that we receive Christ, we're being sanctified. Uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 6 about how we are being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If we're growing spiritually. I hope that a year from now I'm more like Jesus than I am today. And if I'm working on spiritual growth, I will be. And then one day... I'm going to shuffle off this mortal body and I'm going to have a glorified body and I'm either going to be, Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to be caught up in the air instantly to join him or I'm going to die and we're going to put me in a rented piece of ground where I will not stay very long because one day the grave's going to pop open God's going to glorify my body and he's going to take me to heaven. And people will still be able to recognize me because after all they recognized Moses and Elijah and they had never even met them on the Mount of Transfiguration which we'll get to in a minute. But when you're justified and you're being sanctified and one day you're going to be glorified, then justified plus sanctified plus glorified equals salvation. It equals being saved. So it's still a future thing. But look what he says now. We are kept by the power of God, no greater power, through faith unto what? Unto salvation. This future thing that's reserved in heaven for me. How does anybody believe that you can lose your relationship with Jesus Christ? He knew that we would mess it up. So he keeps it for us. I tell you what, that's exciting. It was, uh, it was exciting in my dream and I, I woke up thinking, I need to preach this. Now we need to remember our body's just a tent. Now our tent gives us a lot of trouble. Mine's given me lots of trouble since last September when I hurt my back again at the funeral of a friend. But Jesus tells Peter, basically, he says, Jesus has told me it's time to pack up my tent. Jesus has told me the tent's not going to be here much longer. My tabernacle, my tent is going. Uh, tents don't stay up and long. They don't remain in one place long. They move on. And in verse 14, Peter says, Jesus told me. It's nearly the time for my tent to be removed. So he says, as long as my tent's still here, I want to remind you of some stuff. My tent's about to depart, but until then, I'm going to keep reminding you of stuff because it's that important. In fact is, in John 21, 18 through 19, Jesus even predicted the manner of Peter's death. Here's what he said. This is the words of Jesus spoken to Peter. Truly, truly, I say unto you, when you were young, you tied your clothes around yourself and you walked where you wanted but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will tie you up and carry you where you do not want to go. Now he said this to indicate by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Well, I tell you what, he'd already said follow me once to Peter. But this time he says, listen, you're going to die a horrible death. Follow me. Yeah, that's not the greatest recruitment speech I've ever heard. But isn't it cool that Peter knew he was going to die? Like, and, and what tradition tells us is that when they went to crucify Peter, he refused to be crucified as the Lord had, so he insisted on being crucified upside down. And he was crucified after watching his wife be crucified first. And yet he, he never recanted his faith. 
it's, it's an amazing thing to think about that. Now, one thing we need to remember that Peter wants to remind us of is we're all on a pilgrimage. We're all on a journey. Listen to how Peter refers three different times to this idea. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the chosen, who are residing temporarily in the dispersion of Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, etc. Uh, verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your temporary residence. Now, the house we're living in now, we built in 2003, so we are in our 17th year this August. will be 17 years since we moved into our house. It was almost on Labor Day, so August slash September. That is the longest Judy and I have lived anywhere. We used to move once a year. I think uh, by the time uh, we finally got to Duncanville, which was our last place that we lived before Mansfield, I think that Melody had lived in something like 13 houses. Now, Christiana is born in the one that we're in now, and most of my kids can't even remember the house we lived in in Duncanville. It's just kind of beyond them to remember that. They were too small. Uh, so you almost feel like it's permanent, but the reality is it's not. We're at a temporary residence. And you may, the paper mark may say that you own a home, but we know in Texas you don't really own a home because you have to keep paying property taxes on it. If you don't do that, you'll find out who owns the home. Uh, but also, you don't own a home because you're going to leave, and you're going to leave it behind. What are you going to do with it then? It is a temporary residence. We're all on a pilgrimage. He says in 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires which war against your soul. So we're, let's, we need to remember that we're not here indefinitely. In fact, is I think these are great passages maybe to preach at a funeral. To remind us all that life is short, death is sure, and judgment is certain. Now, Peter practices what he preaches. Remember, he just got through in the preceding verses to what we read today, telling us we need to add to faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge all these other things. You know, temperance, self-control, uh, brotherly love, and, and love itself. Uh, and he says you need to make a rich and diligent effort. Uh, and then he tells us in 2 Peter 1, Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. We talked about that in the last message. Uh, he, he said in 2 Peter 3.14, Seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. But Peter is saying right here in 2 Peter 1.15 that he's going to practice what he preaches. He's going to be diligent about his own spiritual growth till God takes him on. He says, moreover, I will endeavor, I'll give diligence, I'll make effort that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. He says, I'm going to live in such a way and I'm going to write things down and I'm going to remind you frequently so that even after I'm dead and gone, even after my tent has folded up and I've moved on to another location, that without a doubt you'll remember these things after my decease. And I, I hope all of us will find ways to do that. By the way, this word decease... Uh, he uses the word departure in one translation and another translation. He uses the word deceased. It's the Greek word exodon from which we get exodus, from which we get exit. Okay, uh, That's where we get that word from. It's from the Greek word exodon. And it means a going out. Now, interestingly enough, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember Matthew 17, Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, just those three disciples. He goes up on a mountain, and all of a sudden... 
uh, he's kind of lifted up and they see Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. And it says they were talking to him about his own exodon, his own departure, his own time of death. And evidently the apostles could hear this because they knew what the conversation was about. And, and it says they who appeared in glory and spake of his exodon, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah are briefing him on the death that is to come. Now, here's something that you should remember at every funeral you go to from now on. And I've recently lost several people that I felt close to. And I'm thinking about how wonderful this is. That the opposite of exodon is isodus. Ice means into. Ace in Greek means into. So an asodos is an entrance. And the exit in death is in stark contrast to the entrance we have into the presence of God after we exit this life. What, look what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.11. For so an entrance, an asodos, shall be ministered unto you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Boy, that is good to remember. If I exit this world, please don't forget, I got to enter into a far better one. I didn't just exit and I'm in the ground. When I exit, I enter somewhere else. And what I enter is a far bigger and brighter room than what I left. I, that's, that's exciting to me. Over here on the left is my good friend Lee Kozier. Uh, I got to know Lee a few years ago when I went to Colorado Springs after IBM bought the company. Well, actually, Micromuse bought the company he was working for. And uh, so I went up there to acquaint him with our software because it would be integrating with his software. And I got to know him. He got to be a good friend. He later worked with me in the same group. We did courses together. I got to see him on a number of occasions. And he was a a committed Christian, different denomination, but a committed Christian. Uh, he loved his wife, loved his kids. He was very active in his church. His church had a drama ministry. He was active in that. Uh, he, he really was a blessing to a lot of people. And, and about uh, a little over a year ago now, he went home to be with the Lord. And then, of course, in this middle picture, you see my, my kids surrounding my mother. And my mother went home to be with the Lord two weeks after Mother's Day last year. So this was my first Mother's Day to not have my mom here. And uh, I still, every now and then, find myself reaching for her phone to call her to tell her about something only to remember at the last minute, I can't do that anymore. I'm, it still freaks me out a little bit uh, that I'm, I'm reaching for the phone to call her and tell her because I know she'd be interested. And I, I see my girls doing amazing artwork and I think, oh, I know mom would be proud of them. And then over here on the right is a friend of mine, Shane Rudolph, that just went home to be with the Lord uh, about maybe a week and a half ago, in fact, is I think it was just uh, early this last week that I actually took time to watch his funeral service that was on the Internet uh, after the fact. Because they're coronavirus, they had just a very small group of people there, but I know a lot more would be. Shane is eight years younger than me, and uh, he has... Uh, a couple of daughters that you see there, and he has a wife, and he and his wife has, uh, have been married for 28 years. Uh, and if you can remember to pray for Stephanie, she needs your prayers because this is the, the first time uh, in 28 years that they've been apart. But you know, what's amazing about all of these people, because I knew them all well, is when they made their exodon from this world, they made their isodos into a far better place. That's exciting. Death is not something Christians ought to be dreading for themselves. 
We ought to be looking forward to it. The fact is, the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He looks forward to welcoming us home. So Peter wanted to leave lasting reminders. How did he do that? Well, he wrote 1 Peter. He wrote 2 Peter. Many Bible scholars think that Peter also uh, helped shape the gospel of Mark, uh, that he helped Mark write that gospel, uh, and uh, there seems to be good evidence for that. Uh, he was a great influence on a couple other people, Silas uh, and Mark both uh, were greatly influenced and they carried on his work after he died. And then he made sure that others would not forget uh, God's word after that. Speaking of God's word, let's talk about now the majesty of God's word. And what I want to first of all explain to you, there are two different types of the word of God in the Bible. When we just say the Word of God, normally we're referring to the Bible. We're referring to that book that you see there at the top of the slide. It's a collection of 66 books, and no more than 66 books, and I'll explain why the Apocrypha is not part of Scripture. But it was written by more than 40 authors, over 2,500 square miles, over 1,500 years, and there's no contradictions between any two parts of it. There are things that people consider contradictions until... You study and you explain and, and you help them understand. But it is a supernatural word that's unequaled by any other attempt by any other person uh, to, who received direct revelation from God. Now, here's one point. All of the writers of these 66 books received direct revelation from God. They were, in many cases, they were eyewitnesses of them or like Moses uh, they, Moses did have an encounter where he visibly saw the presence of God, but many of the things that are recorded in the earlier books of the Bible were given to Moses. Uh, but they were eyewitnesses of these things, and they received direct revelation from God. And Peter's going to explain that to us next week. He's going to explain part of it this week. He's going to explain part of it next week when he says that no scripture is given by any private interpretation, but it was written by men who were carried along by the Holy Ghost. And they wrote down, even through their own personalities that come through Scripture, they wrote down what God superintended for them. And that statement cannot be said of any other book. The Book of Mormon, no eyewitnesses of God doing anything. No direct revelation from anyone. Joseph Smith had an encounter. Uh, and if you actually read the book, the, uh, the Pearl of Great Price, in which he describes this encounter, I believe it was a demonic encounter. It was horrific darkness, and suddenly this, this being portrayed itself as an angel uh, of light. And, of course, the Bible tells us that Satan deceives people by appearing as an angel of light. Uh, but it was just one guy. There's no corroboration. And yet people go around knocking on doors to this day with their little, you know, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Elder so-and-so, even though it's kind of funny. I didn't realize I was the oldest guy here till you said it earlier, Steve. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess I am an elder today. I'm the oldest guy here. Uh, but but they, they, they're, they're 19 and 20 and they got elder so-and-so. And, -so and I, I just kind of have to laugh sometimes. Uh, but there's another kind of word of God. And that is sometimes the term the word is actually used to refer to Jesus Christ himself. This is what we call the incarnate word. Incarnate means put into human flesh word. And, and that's what we have in John 1 where it says, In the beginning was the word. Now he's not talking about the Bible. The Bible wasn't back there in Genesis 1. But Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the word. And the word, Jesus, 
was with God and the Word, Jesus, was God. Okay, there we go right there. The Bible that you hold in your lap is not God. But Jesus is God. So this is a different kind of word. This is the incarnate word. The same was in the beginning with God. Now he says the same. So he's about to, it's like a math equation. The word, the same means equals. And what's it equal to? All things were made by him, the him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So the incarnate word is the same as him who is Christ our creator and Christ our redeemer. It's the incarnate word. And beginning in verse 16, we're going to hear Peter refer both to the incarnate word and then he's going to shift from the incarnate word to the written word. And you're going to hear both of those. So I just want to clarify so that you know what is going on. Let's talk about the faith on which Peter's, uh, the word on which Peter's faith rested. He says, my faith does not rest on cunningly devised fables. Now, what's he mean by that? The, the word fables here is the Greek word muthois, from which we get myths. And he says, it's not based on myths. It's not based on made-up stories as the doctrines of the false teachers. And in 2 Peter 2, you're going to hear Peter attack the false teachers of his days and prove that what they were basing their teaching on was false myths and traditions, but not on the revealed Word of God. And true faith is founded on the historical facts set down by eyewitnesses of Christ in the New Testament and the eyewitnesses of the workings and revelations of Jehovah in the Old Testament. So the Bible canon... That is the 66 books we have closed with the death of the last eyewitness of Christ. Now, you've probably seen a Catholic Bible or another Bible. It's got Bell and the Dragon and, and uh, a bunch of other uh, books. and We call it the Apocrypha because it's a word that indicates that they're interesting things, but they're not Scripture. Uh, those people who want to defend them in Scripture, they call them the Deuterocanon. The problem is none of those books were written by eyewitnesses of the working power of God. The books, uh, A lot of those books were written during the 400-year intertestamental period between the close of the Old Testament canon and the start of the New Testament canon. And they're in those 400 years where there was a, a seeming silence from God. And some of it's pretty interesting. We do have a historical account of the Maccabean revolt. And so there's a first, second, and third Maccabees uh, that explains how the Maccabean revolt took place. And by the way, I don't agree with the way Judas Maccabees went about doing what he was doing because there was an alternative, which was to suffer for doing right and to let God intervene. Uh, but the point is, is where there's some historical content, there's some other stuff that's just pure fanciful. Uh, it's just made up stories, it's myths, it's fairy tales, but they put it in. And what happened was when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek to create what was called the Septuagint, somebody said, hey, well, there's all these other cool stories. Why don't we just add that as an appendix? But even when they did that, the scholars who created the Septuagint made a public statement that says, we do not consider these part of inspired scripture. And yet there are people today, I remember I went to a funeral a number of years ago for a dear friend. Uh, it, was, it was actually for her mother. Her mother had been in a Baptist church all of her life, but the daughter was Catholic. And when she arranged the funeral, she asked her Catholic priest to preach the funeral of her Baptist mother. And do you know that at the funeral, they did not read a single, single scripture from the 66 books of the scriptural canon. They read these fanciful passages from the Apocrypha. And I thought that was a horrible disservice to her mother and a dishonor to her mother. 
But see, the thing is, the books we have in the 66 books of the Bible were written by people that received direct revelation to God or they were eyewitnesses. And by the way, there's whole books on canonicity that explain a whole list of other reasons why those books are not in the canon. But here's the simple one that Peter gives us. What we have in the New Testament is the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament closed when the eyewitness was over. Which, by the way, means that we should not look to church history and church tradition for doctrine. Because we know from the New Testament that people very quickly get astray from truth. There are passages in the New Testament where Paul is having the right to correct an error. In fact, is Peter is an example. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he says, And when I came to Antioch, I had to withstand Peter to the face because whenever the Jews were around, he ate with the Jews. But when the Gentile Christians were around, he, he tried to uh, act like that. But when they're both there, he just wanted to hide with the Jews. And he says, I withstood him to the face. He was playing a hypocrite. And, and, and Paul called Peter a hypocrite to his face. Now listen, if Peter can go doctrinally astray, don't you think that three, four hundred years afterwards when we have what are, quote, the early church fathers, unquote, that they're going to do- doctrinally astray? And do you know the early church fathers don't agree with each other anyway? Uh, John Chrysostom was the one that was closest to the truth and he kept telling the other church fathers, you're interpreting scripture wrong. You're, you're making everything an allegory. You're turning everything into a fairy tale. You need to get back to a literal interpretation of scripture. Did they listen to John Chrysostom? No, they didn't. And the quote early church fathers plunged Christianity into spiritual darkness for nearly 1400 years before the Reformation. So I just understand that Peter says, my faith is based on what we have been eyewitnesses of. That's what makes the Bible different. Now, here is something exciting. The majestic coming of Christ. So Peter's going to give us an example of a doctrine based on what he was an eyewitness of. He says Christ is coming again, and how does he know that? Because he got a picture of it in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here's how Peter describes it. For he, talking about Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent or majestic glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And you remember that story. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. He was an eyewitness of these things. So Peter speaks on this and he considered that this doctrine was greatly important and he frequently reminds his readers about it. The experience proved to Peter that Christ would return to earth at a later date and time just as Moses and Elijah have come back from an earlier date and time to be seen in Matthew 17. By the way, do you all remember this little detail? I think this is a funny detail to me personally. Uh, the, the funny detail is, is that as soon as the voice got through speaking and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are there and they're talking with Jesus, Peter interrupts the whole deal. And he says, oh, Master, this is wonderful. Let us build here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And all of a sudden the voice out of heaven says, Peter, be quiet. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now shut up. Now that's the Robert Rowland version of scripture, okay. But he says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. He, he, he basically puts Peter to silence. In an interesting one to build tabernacles. Now by the way, we often fault Peter for this. But let me explain something you may not understand about why he wanted to build tabernacles. There is a feast in the Feast of Israel called the Feast of Tabernacles. And every year... 
a bunch of people go out and they live in tents on their way in a procession toward Jerusalem and they would keep this feast and they were reminding themselves that for 40 years the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness and lived in tabernacles. They lived in tents. They lived in small tabernacles around the big tabernacle that hosted the presence of God. And so he wants to build a tabernacle because Moses and, and uh, Elijah are from these old days and he's saying, hey, wait a minute. The tabernacles, them coming back from these old days is a reminder that there is going to be a kingdom. And the Feast of Tabernacles was about celebrating the fact that Israel wandered around for 40 years, but then they would one day come into their own kingdom with their own king and be ruled by their own Messiah. So what Peter is really wanting to do is, let me build a memorial of the fact that the kingdom has come. Right answer, wrong time. Right answer, wrong time. And that's exactly what happened here. So let's read very quickly Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, brings them up into a high mountain apart, was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. By the way, this sounds a lot like Revelation 1. Uh, his raiment was white as the light, again like Revelation 1. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles. Right answer, wrong time. He knew the kingdom was coming, but it wasn't then. One for you and one for Moses, one for Elias. While yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is, this is God saying, Peter, don't want to hear you. Listen to Jesus. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and they were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. So what happened on the mount? First of all, Jesus was transfigured, and we have here the Greek word from which we get metamorphosis or change. There was something, a visible change in the appearance of Jesus so that his hair was white, his eyes were shining, his feet were like burning fire, he, his whole raiment appeared to be solid white, and, and Peter got a glimpse of what Jesus will look like when we see him at his second coming. That's awesome. And this revealed Jesus' glory and majesty. And then what else did he see? Moses and Elijah showed up. And they appeared from heaven in some visible form. And by the way, he had never met Moses or Elijah, but they knew this was Moses and Elijah. You know, sometimes I've wished when we have new visitors for a while that we could get them all to wear name tags for about three weeks. And I, sometimes I think we should wear name tags to help them get used to who we are. Sometimes I need a name tag to remind me of who I am. But when we get to heaven, nobody needs a name tag. We will all know instantly who people are. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and, and, but they recognized Moses and Elijah, and it says they talked with Jesus. Demonst and this demonstrates that there's something after death or something after you leave this life. Obviously, Elijah didn't die. Moses did. But there's something after that. So this was proof to Peter, hey, there's life after death. There's life after you leave this life. That was one proof. And Luke wrote specifically that Moses and Elijah told Jesus about his coming death. And by the way, Jesus makes a prophecy to Peter in Matthew 16, which was just one chapter early. And listen to what Jesus says to, to his disciples. Matthew 16, 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Now, I've always read that verse and thought, well, wait a minute, that, you know, kingdom isn't here yet, and, and uh, they're all dead. That didn't come true, did it? No, it did, because the, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, some of them, not all of them, just like he said, they got to see a vision of Jesus in his glorified form as we will see him the next time he comes. He is not going to come back looking like a carpenter with dirty feet and drab apparel. Next time you see Jesus, he will be here in all of his glory. Ah, that's exciting. That's, that's, that's just exciting. All right, so that's what happened on the mountain. Now, by the way, we need to ask a little question here. Why were Moses and Elijah there anyway? I'm going to give you a, a couple of theories, or maybe one theory. First of all, if you think about who's on the mountain, they really represent... Everybody that's going to be in the final kingdom. Think about it. Uh, the disciples uh, represent individuals who will be present in physical bodies when Christ comes back in. When Christ returns, now I realize not everybody believes in a thousand year millennial reign of Christ. I do. I believe in the millennium. And I realize there's people that are called all millennialists and they don't. And that's fine. I'll still fellowship with you. We don't have to get upset with each other. But here's one of the reasons I believe this to be true. Because when, we come, when Jesus comes back, what I understand the Bible to say, it's he's going to rule and reign on a throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And the book of Revelation says that demons will be bound in a pit until the end of the thousand years, and they'll be loosed temporarily, and they'll wreak havoc uh, once more and try to call out anybody who's not genuinely saved. And during that thousand-year reign of Christ, if you, if you die before you're 100 years old, we know you were doing something wrong because you probably won't even be getting married until you're 100, and, you know, and then it may be until you're 200, 250 before you decide to have kids. There will be people being born during the millennium and they will have to make for themselves a decision whether to follow the king that sits on the throne in Jerusalem and proclaim him as their Lord and Savior. And I believe the disciples represent this group. They are people who are physically on earth in non-glorified bodies, non-immortal uh, bodies during the earthly reign of Jesus Christ before the final great white throne judgment when we all go to live in heaven with Christ on the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there's a second group here, and that is Moses died. This represents people that died in a relationship with God. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they followed Yahweh or Jehovah. In the New Testament, they followed Christ. There is no other foundation, though, that can be laid than that. So, you know, if you believed in Buddha, you're, you're out of luck. If you believe in Muhammad, you're out of luck. Uh, you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not being intolerant. It's just saying, like, uh, arsenic is poison and you shouldn't eat it. Everything else is poison and you shouldn't believe it. Jesus is the only true Savior. And so Jesus... Uh, there are people who die believing in Jesus and that tomb was just their exodon and they, their soul went into an isodon and they're now in the presence of God. Now I'm not going to tell you they're in heaven because what scripture actually tells us is that they're in the presence of God. But we read that a little bit later there's a new heaven and a new earth. Ultimately we'll wind up in heaven or, or strolling around on the new earth but we'll be there. But they're in the presence of God now. And one day they're going to be reunited and given back their bodies. But this time they'll be glorified bodies. So Moses represents those who die in their faith. And then Elijah, you know Elijah didn't die. He got on a fiery chariot and he was whisked up to heaven. And the Bible tells me in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 uh, something I like to call the great snatch. 
It says, Then which we are we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I don't know when this is going to happen. I'll, I'll tell you, I believe it's in my lifetime. I could be wrong, it could be another hundred years, but it's soon from God's perspective. I don't think the, the current events, I don't, I don't know if you've been listening to all the things. I never expected, Satan is very creative sometimes. Uh, most of you are aware of the mark of the beast. And most of you have probably heard that it's not just a mark on your forehead or on your hand, but the Greek word indicates that it's an implant under your skin. It actually is something in you. And basically there have been people for years now getting chips put in so that they can go to their house and, and uh, put their hand uh, near their door and the RFID mechanism reads the door and unlocks it for them. And then they go to sit down at the computer and the computer automatically reads their RFID chip and they don't have to log in or authenticate. I've got a, I've got a, a, a fingerprint scanner on my computer, but this, this, all you have to do is be near it and it comes on and it works for you. And now, recently, it's been proposed by Bill Gates that everyone who has had the coronavirus and has tested positive for the antibodies should be able to have a chip implanted in them so that you can instantly let somebody know that you can go into the restaurant without wearing a face mask because you've already had this and you're already done with it and you're already over it. So all they got to do is push your hand by a scanner and the green light comes on and in you go because then we can track who's had it and who hasn't. And I thought, boy, isn't that interesting of the devil to think of another way to get the people to accept this mark. It's not only going to be necessary for accessing your financial accounts, it might be necessary for you to regulate your travel based on whether or not you've been exposed to something. You know, it just seems to me in my mind like we're awfully close to the return of Christ. But I could be wrong, but I'm not wrong about this. Jesus will return. I'm not wrong about that. And it says so right there, We which alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So really on the Mount of Transfiguration you have every group that will be represented or representatives of every group that will be here when Christ returns again. So that's one reason. Now, I want you to notice that this is a big deal for Peter. It's a glorious deal for Peter. Listen to his language, and I've got it highlighted in yellow. So look at these words in yellow. We have not followed cunningly devised fables, which have made known unto you the power of, but we've made known unto you the, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of, look at this, his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. Another translation says majestic glory. So this was, uh, this was a glorious, majestic thing. I can't even explain to you what this is. I just know, for example, that I like listening to Christian music. I enjoy listening to Christian music. But quite frankly, when I hear Mendelssohn's Elijah or I hear Handel's Messiah, there's something different about those pieces of music. Those of you who know the history of the Messiah know that... Uh, that George Friedrich Handel wrote it in about two weeks and he didn't eat, he, he didn't drink much and he actually lost his health because it was as he was being moved by the Spirit of God and there's a quality of majesty to that music that you don't hear in a lot of other Christian music today. Well, it's going to be many times that Peter, what he saw was so majestic he was overwhelmed because he saw the glorified Lord and Savior that we're going to see when he comes back on the clouds again. And that made him have a burning desire to share Christ with others as he was one of the only three that actually got to see that experience. And he wanted his readers to have that same experience. So he was firmly committed to the doctrine of the second coming. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 2, 
on the day of Pentecost, it says, there, this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. I'm an eyewitness. Therefore, being by the right hand, that's the, the person at the right hand of the king is the one with all the power and all the authority. He says, by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Also he said, and this is in response to the, the speaking in tongues at the day of Pentecost, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord, that means God, and Christ, which means Messiah. He says, hey, you crucified him, but that was God, and that's your Messiah. And you missed it. Remember in Acts chapter 3, we have this story where this guy is at this temple called Beautiful, and he laid there every day, couldn't get up, couldn't take care of himself, so he had an offering plate, and he would just take offerings. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody like this. I remember the first time I saw somebody like this. I was in Taiwan, 1982, and, and Dad and I were going down the street together, and we had to cross on a bridge over uh, a highway, and as we crossed there, there was this man whose legs were... Uh, permanently folded up underneath him. In other words, if, if his family, his family would take him out there every day and plop him down and they'd come back and pick him up. And when they picked him up, his legs were still crossed underneath him. His legs wouldn't even unbend and they were just withered and they were useless. And, and he was, he was begging money. And, and dad explained to me that he didn't really get to keep that money. His family took the money and they gave him whatever minimal amount he needed to, of food and stuff to keep him alive because that was part of their, their stream of income for that family. But this is, this guy is at the temple called Beautiful and he's begging alms. And I don't know if his family got a cut of it or what, but he's there and he can't walk and he's lame and it's, it's a real deal. Somebody that really has no other hope. And, and, Peter and John says, hey, listen, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ. And now rise up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks and picks up his bed and he jumps around and he's, he's jumping and everybody's looking at it. And it says, and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them that were in the porch called Solomon, Solomon's porch, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, you men of Israel, why marvel you at this? And I'm going to skip a few verses here. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of fathers, listen to how Peter talks, has glorified his son Jesus. And you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Again, that's the writers of Scripture were eyewitnesses of these things. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. By the way, some of you may be wondering, well, Apostle Paul wasn't an eyewitness, was he? Yeah, he was. Galatians says that he, after his conversion, that he went out into the wilderness of Galatia and he communed with Jesus Christ directly for three years. Paul was in seminary for three years with Jesus as the teacher before he ever consulted with any of the other apostles. He was definitely an eyewitness. Uh, just an amazing thing. So Peter was impressed. Now, I want to close with this thought, and, and I think there's maybe this slide and maybe one other. And this is interesting to me. I think if I'd been on the Mount of Transfiguration, I would have just been overwhelmed by the whiteness of Jesus' hair and his raiments and the fact that his feet burned like fire and he was, his eyes were piercing uh, through everything and shined like light. And I, I would have been impressed that, that Moses, who led my people out of Israel, and for all that time, he was there. And then Elijah, the guy that got to ride in the fiery chariot, I would have been so impressed by how they looked. I probably would have written about that. But you know what impressed Peter? It wasn't what he saw. 
Because he talks far more about what he heard. Listen to this. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. He said, man, this is such a voice. This isn't just a voice. This is a really good voice. This is an amazing voice. This is an astounding voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's verbatim from the account in the Gospels. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard. He doesn't even talk about what he saw here. He talks about what he heard when we were in the Holy Mount. What's that mean for us? Paul said, so then faith comes by hearing, not by seeing, by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What's that mean for me? It means I need to be in my Bible because that's where I hear what God says to me. I need to be reading my Bible because that's where I hear God's thoughts for my life and His promises to my life. And it's a valuable part of my Christian spiritual growth. So I want to impress on you what the Word says is more important than the things you see in the news, the traditions you see in church history, the things you see other people do, the religious displays that sometimes are ostentatious and go to pomp and circumstance. None of that is nearly as important as the simple words of God. The memory of God's Word is so important because once God's Word gets in our heart and we memorize it and meditate on it, it holds on to us. When I had this dream the other night about teaching seminary students about the security of the believer, I was quoting those scriptures to them to prove that that was a valid doctrine and it is flat out silly to believe you can lose your salvation. And you know where those scriptures came from? They were in my heart. I don't even remember memorizing, but I, over 40 years I've taught that so much and preached it so much that those words are second nature to me. And I probably have memorized some of those verses. And, but they're in my heart and they came out in my dream as I'm teaching these students. And it's so exciting to me, especially that passage that we are kept by the power of God. What an amazing thing. The word takes precedence over what we see or what we hear. Now next time... We're going to get to the last part of this passage where Peter talks about how you know that Scripture is inspired. I'm looking forward to that message. We're going to talk about the meaning of God's Word.